This episode of Moment is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com moment. And by Making a Murderer, an unprecedented new documentary that takes viewers inside a high-stakes criminal case where reputation is everything and things are never as they appear. All episodes are now streaming only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This, this is a big deal to me. Right at the beginning, when I made my initial list of people I wanted to talk to on this show, when I started 98 episodes ago, today's guest was on it. And that's because um, today's guest was someone who was an inspiration to me, right, as I was starting to do, what I, to do this, not podcasting, uh, movies. My guest today is Scott Rosenberg. And Scott has been one of the most important and influential screenwriters in the movie business since people started reading his script, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. And uh, what year did you write that script? I wrote it in 93? Right. Rounders came out, our first movie, in 98, and I think Denver came out in 95, right? Right, right yeah, yeah. But I'd read it way before that. And I remember that David Levine, who's my you know, writing partner and filmmaking partner, he was out in LA working as an assistant, and once in a great, really almost never, but once in a while, he would send me a script that somebody wrote and uh, say, like, this is what... I want to do someday. You know, this is what we should do. One of those scripts was Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, and I'll never forget reading it and, and thinking, oh, this is somebody who has total control over what he's doing on the page, who's got his own voice. And uh, it was such a rare, explosive sort of a thing. And I had so many questions that I wanted to ask you even then about how you did it. Um, but after that, I mean, you wrote that Beautiful Girls, Con Air, and your career took off and you became, you know, one of those million-dollar screenwriters just at a time that million-dollar screenwriters were becoming a thing, right? Right. That was a good time. That, those, those days. Those days were good. But Denver was, uh, Denver was, you know, I'd been out there in L.A. for a few years kicking around, working, doing shit jobs, doing everything I could. I had no money. And then I wrote this short film that my friend Gary Fleeter made for USC. It was when they were doing those... Uh, I forget what they're called, but the, every year they'd have those academy screenings for the, stu the students. You and Gary met at college? We met at BU. So right. I, I'd known him, but we weren't friends then um, at all at BU, but we, but we sort of became friends based on sort of mutual admiration for each other's talents. Like I didn't, he was, he was definitely at BU. He was like front of the class guy and I was back of the class guy. What do you mean you were back of the class I guy? I just wasn't interested in, and he was so clearly, it was a film school at BU and he was so clearly the most talented and ev all the rest of us were sort of just fucking around. They didn't even have a screen. I, I think then I couldn't. I went to write, and I don't think they had a screenwriting. Like we weren't even writing scripts. It was all about making films, which I actually had no interest in. But I also got into the creative writing department, which was run by this guy Leslie Epstein, who was this novelist, whose son actually went on to become the general manager of the Boston Red Sox. And Theo delivered us to a couple of World Series. Thank you very much. But he, uh, but Leslie got me into the graduate program as an undergrad so I was like that 19 year old kid who would show up with 40 pages of fiction that I'd written the night before and all the other all the other students are like in their 40s 
and they're trying to be novelists and they've got kids and they hated my guts so much and I really got oh, that's a thing you've taken pride in your whole life like <laughs> be, many of your an, stories many of your stories end <laughs> no but many of your stories when you'll tell a story on yourself will, will end with uh, and so that's why all those motherfuckers hated me <laughs> no. and I know it's true like but and, and I but that is such a isn't that just me being just a, a braggadocio asshole by saying I mean yeah yeah they hated me but the reason they hated me is because bang well no but it is I wonder you know Tony Gilroy said this thing to me on the podcast that in order to write his script sometimes he will like walk around New York City until he feels special enough to execute it <laughs> right and I've always felt like you kind of put a spell on yourself too like and I wonder about it because you'll tell stories about writing all night long grabbing a six pack going to the thing and you sort of ritualized it before people really were talking about the rituals of writing and I think that ties into how you see yourself versus other people like you immediately went oh Gary was so talented but obviously Scott, you had like a some kind of kind of innate gift for yes, but I think that's part of it. That's part of what it is. I always it was always like we Fleeter would say it. He's like, I can't wait for the day. He's like, you do not take care of your instrument. He said, you're Babe Ruth. He's like, you're eating 15 hot dogs and you're drinking 25 beers and then you're going and then you're hitting home runs. And he said, I can't wait for the day. He he, he used to describe it. He's like, you sit down and somehow you just tap into the muse right away. And he said, I can't wait for the day when you sit down and the muse don't answer the phone. And you're just sitting there going, hello, hello, I'm, I'm right. I owe this screenplay to Fox in a week. And what, where, where are you? And it, but it, but it, is kind of, it is kind of true. And I think, of course, the older you get, the, 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 the muse is sometimes not home. Yeah, the more that signal becomes right. spotted. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Well, okay. First of all, can you hear me now? Oh yeah. But wait, why did you love the fact? Because that I believe yeah, that that was uh, Gary Fleeter would say that to you. But why? Why do you think he like people would wish like again? That's another one of those stories where you got a guy and he's looking at you going, "Kid, I can't wait to see the washed up version of you." Right. Some part of you likes that. Well, yeah, because come on, it's it's the sort of romanticized version of of what we do, isn't it? I mean, it it really is. I mean, that whole sort of William Holden and Sunset Boulevard thing is just. Uh, it sticks with a guy, you know? But I also think, listen, part of it is there's something kind of inherently cool about saying I'm a dilettante. Like, I'm, a, I, I'm not really, especially in this business where rejection is, is everywhere and ubiquitous. There's something a little bit comforting about saying, you know, I don't, actually don't give a fuck. Like, I'm going to do this and it's going to work for me. I mean, listen, the bottom line is I was kicking around for four or five years before I wrote Denver. Working, like doing, you know, um, we sold a pitch to... Joel Silver, there was this movie, I sold a movie to DeLuca uh, at New Line then, and then I did an adaptation of a Michael Conley novel before he was even famous for uh, at Paramount. Which one? Um, the Black Ice, I think Oh, it that's was. a great one. One of the first two. Yeah, it was, it was the, one of the, it was, Harry the, it was actually books. the second Harry yeah. Bosch book. But they, um, and, then, uh, and then my father got sick and my father died, and I wanted to deal with it, but I didn't want to deal with it in the way that the, you know, the sort of traditional, I mean, I've said this a million times, the, the movie of the week kind of thing. And so it, it was, I, I wrote that script in a day, a day, a week. I wrote that script in a week. I literally locked, I was in Boston. I locked myself in a room and I was like, I, I just need to deal with the death of my father. And it was, because one of the things that was so fascinating about him is that he had met this woman pretty much a week or so before he got diagnosed or a week or so after, right around the time. It was My parents were separated, and it was the second love of his life. And, and that, that is something I really wanted to address. It's funny because that's sort of the wonkiest part of the whole movie is the love story part. But, but it really came from that place. Like, so not wonky in the script. No, not, not wonky in the script. And I, I, which I, I want to talk about because that script, and I, uh, I remember reading that script, and I remember getting to that part, and he says, you know, a girl who glides deserves a guy uh, who makes you thump. Right, right. 
And the explanation of that and the line about the toothbrush and all that stuff. Um, and you really do believe it. That script really casts a spell that the movie doesn't quite cast. And I've, I've often wondered, although the movie broke you and made you somebody who really mattered, and I know you love the movie, but it could have been like an all-time great thing. I actually don't think it could have. Why? Because I think at the end of the day, it's so funny because we got all, of course, we got all the Tarantino comparisons because it was sort of all bubbling up at the same time. You know, we did that at Miramax where Quentin was at Miramax, obviously. And so I would see him all the time at all the different, you know, back in those days, Harvey was, maybe he still is, I'm just not invited. But there were all kinds, everybody was hanging out. And I remember saying to Quentin, Denver hadn't come out yet. And I said, I will give you, I will give you a dollar for every review of my movie that doesn't mention your name and I guarantee I won't owe you a nickel and it, it, it actually came to pass like I mean if you look at every single I mean how many reviews are there of a movie if, if there were 250 reviews of that movie everyone said his name so we got a lot of shit for that because they were gangsters talking a lot voluble gangsters it was like a genre unto itself but the reason I don't think it would have worked is at the end of the day it was l truly about the death of my father and if you watch it it really is it's about you meet five guys five guys do a thing and then five guys die it's it's so it's just so there's nothing there's no real kind of twists there's no it's certainly not tarantino in it's not fun it's really dark i mean you think it's fun your memory of it is fun i promise you if you watch it today it's a very dark kind of sad movie and and i was not but right and the script had a room i would just say and i don't want to you know you've done a lot since then and i want to talk about all of it though I think one of the great things when, when you made October Road all those years later, you kind of returned tonally to the first couple of movies. And I, I think it was a beautiful thing in terms of like recapturing this voice that I think you'd had and found again. But there's like a, a romantic sadness to the script an inevitability, sure. But this idea that this guy falls in love as he's sentenced to death. Right, exactly. Sentenced to death, not like he's going to the chair, but well, sentenced no, to I, death in the world. Right, and tries so hard to hold on to a whole bunch of stuff, all the stuff that mattered. And that's a theme. Did you only discover that theme for yourself when your father died? Because it is a theme that's gone through <laughs> so much of your work. No, I mean, I've, I've just always been a, I've always just ran with a big pack of men, as it were, all my life. I mean, I've always just sort of surrounded myself with, with guys. And, and I think that a lot of the vernacular and just a lot of the the spirit of what I write sort of always comes from that. And of course, the, you know, one of the things that is most important to guys when they're together is girls. So it's not like it's, it's not like it's just, I'm so not the guy, like, let's just talk about football and, and, you know, beating people up. It was never that. I mean, there's, there's a, again, there's a healthy romanticism to the way that I would approach the sort of masculine ideal, if it were, you know? Yeah, it's how you tell stories about yourself in life, and then it's how you tell, you know, a guy doesn't say to a guy, another guy in Scott Rosenberg's world, uh, that sucks. He says, give it a name. Right, right, right. Well, that was, that. I mean, that was a really sort of by design. It, the whole point of that was I truly wanted to invent a language. I, w I wanted you to be able to go sort of the way they did it in Clockwork Orange, where like half the time you had no idea what the fuck they were talking about, but and yet you did. You know, there are sort of passages in Denver with it that almost could have, could have been subtitled. And yet on some intrinsic level, you actually do, you still do understand what they're saying. Well, yeah, I mean, that idea, that and, and House of Games were definitely two things that did that, that made Dave and, and me know that we could try to do that right. with our first script, right? right. That yeah. was what made us, oh, you can have an insular world. And there were many things that did it, but there were two recent things that did it were your movie and House of Games. And it was like, yeah. oh, this is possible to create a language the way we all have a secret language. 
And that idea of secret language between men, it really resonates for you still, right? Yeah, for sure. It, it absolutely does. I think I, I do think that part of the, the success of Denver, the script, was something that, and again, I didn't invent it. I mean, it was this thing that William Goldman had done, and then Shane Black sort of... You yeah, know, the great screenwriters making a read a script that was really fun to that read. Was, that was fun to read, and and I actually did it just because it made it fun to write. But I also think that 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 thing that you said about how it just said, "Oh, I could do that," you know, it, 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 all of a sudden you understood that it doesn't have to be this sort of cold clinical approach. I remember, you know, and I feel like it happened. I don't know why, but it happened. I, I feel like it was over one week that, and it must have been. We must have been at some. It must have been like Oscar week or some week because I remember one week. John Favreau, Steve Gagan, and Pete Berg separately telling me that Denver was the script that they read that said, oh, I could, I could, just like what you said, like, I could do this. And I, I mean, obviously, I was wildly flattered. They've all gone, they're all way more successful than I am now, but, but I like to think that I, I, was, I was part of their journey, a critical part of their journey. But I think that that was part of, of what it was. I mean, I read, honestly, and it's kind of crazy, and it, maybe it, it's obvious, the first two scripts that I've ever read, the first screenplay I ever read was Marathon Man. Golden um, script, yeah, and, which is a great script to read. And the, and then, you know, I read Lethal Weapon, which is sort of Lethal Weapon, Chinatown too, which is, you know, brilliant, but not sort of doesn't do that thing. But, Chinatown, harder to understand what it's going to be on the page. Right, exactly. A, a fascinating thing to learn about how the, the way in which a script can be elevated by camera. Right. By a director sure. with a huge, vi- you know, morally compromised director, but with a huge vision can you know, really take something great and right. make it something sublime. Right. But those other things, are they, they're just so alive on the page. Oh, well, they were, they were almost novelistic. I mean, and, and they, it's just, it was like reading a good book. I, I'm somebody who hates reading screenplays. I hate it. I have to read a lot these days, and I just don't, I, I just don't like them. It's true. It's one of your worst things is you're, you're great at getting notes from friends. You're terrible at actually doing them. Because uh, well, reading screenplays is painful for you, right? But I, I no, I, I I love giving notes, but it's but the reading the script reading part the script to do it is very hard for very, you. Very very hard, just uh, agony, honestly. And my girlfriend has has one of those jobs where she reads like five scripts a, a weekend, and I'm I it's painful to me to even watch. Not only do I hate reading them, I can't watch other people reading them because <laughs> you're like it must <laughs> that must suck. No, it must it's be not torture. even that. Well, it's it's also it's a little bit of the part of it is so many of them are terrible. Yes. But then the brilliant ones just make you feel bad about yourself. Well, that's okay. I was going to ask you that that. question. I was going to ask you that question. And I do think it ties into this. Look, you, and it's hard to explain this. I was trying to figure out how to explain to people, but you lived a few years where you were much closer to the way like a movie star or an actor lives than a screenwriter lives. And you had created sort of like through the combination, your personality and your work, a spot for yourself that at the time was you were the only one kind of in it. People who knew you, you were, you know, uh, going out with famous actresses. You were palling around with movie stars. You were also getting the work done and writing the writing the movies. It was the rock star as screenwriter thing. Like that, I, I I never understood why we couldn't be like everybody else. Like why couldn't you do that? I thought okay, we're writers, but so what? That doesn't need. We need not be. The typical writer who, you know, self-loathing and in a room by himself and low-functioning and all that stuff. I was like, there's no need for that. Yes. I, you I mean, know, it wasn't conscious, but it was just, it was sort of me and I was living my life. And you were I, riding it. I would have done it if I was a plumber. I mean, you know, I mean, maybe not with the same level of women, but <laughs> I would have done it. I would have tried. Right. That's just what you were going to go after. But the thing you just said about the brilliant, I was, what I was thinking about is like... Um, 
I've seen you really celebrate when people do great. Like, you're happy for your friends. But I remember once, and I won't say this specific thing, when I was like, oh, you should read this novel a friend of ours wrote. It's great. And you were like, I don't want to. And I was wondering if part of that is that, because it ties into this question I have for you, which is when was the first time you wrote something where you knew, like, I did this thing and it was great? I would, I would look at you and I would sometimes think, and it was a great example, and it, w- it was why I started by mentioning that Gilroy thing of walking around making himself feel special, that you were constantly kind of spinning the story of who you were so that you could do the thing that you do really well, that it's all part of, like, the thing that fuels... I just wonder if it's all part of the thing that fuels you being able to... It certainly was back then, for sure. I mean, that was, that was the whole... Like, the mytho- I guess I'm talking about mythology. Your characters <laughs> self-mythologize. And yes. you self-mythologize, or you used to. Yeah, for sure. Of course. And where's that come? Like, where? why did you find that useful to do? I truly didn't know any other way. I mean, I, I, was, I really wasn't. I mean, this is, a, this is the horrible answer, but I was just being me. I was like, I'm going to, going to have as much fun as humanly. Listen, I'm sure it all ties back to the death of my father. Yeah. But I'm going to go have as much fun as I possibly can. And just because the nature of my job is is not one that would lend itself to that kind of bad behavior or behavior. I'm not going to let that sort of stop me. So and many by writers. The way, by the way, the, the thing about that novel, that it's just, you, you've made that into it much more than it is. I'm perfectly, I, I have it on my pile. I've had it forever. The one thing I truly don't do is I'm not in competition with anybody else. I've always said this. Are, there are people who have much better careers than I. It is very, very easy, and I think you and I have had this conversation before. It's it's one of the the sicknesses of Hollywood. Yeah, is that we all we we don't look at all the people that we are doing that we that we have it better than. That's we funny. can only look at the, at the at the at the few or the you know depending who we are. That I mean, listen. At the end of the day, think of what we've done, what we've accomplished. The fact that twenty years hence we're still doing it, which is yeah. shocking. I was on a panel with Shane Black and Ed Solomon the other day in in Austin, a couple of last year and I was just like that's the miracle man I mean look, look at the fact that the three of us are still sitting up here because we're all baseball players we're supposed to have 10 years good if, if you're lucky you have 10 good years and then that we've been able to sort of su- survive and thrive despite the vicissitudes of the business despite all you know the shit that's go- goes on is amazing but I, I really don't I always say that I'm um, when people ask me like how, where do you sort of think you fit in the, in the ecosystem of the Hollywood screenwriter and I always say, um, I'm not as good as many, but I'm better than most. <laughs> and I think that that's, I think it's really spot on. There, there are guys that just, I, there are guys that blow me away. And then there are the ones who I'm like, wow, it's amazing that you're working, but good for you. You can't get crazy. I'll put it this way. Like I, I remember, I remember sitting uh, with Nick Cage and I think it's fine for me to say this because it's, it's, it's not that big a deal. And, and this is when he was, we were doing those movies together, those action movies. He was making $20 million a year. Right, you, wrote, you, wrote, you wrote Con Air, Con Air you wrote Gone uh, Con Con in 60 Seconds. seconds. Making 20, and rewrote a bunch of other movies. That he was making saying, yeah. $20 million a movie. He, he, we were sitting in his trailer in the middle of the desert somewhere. The, the trailer was bigger than, you know, the first five apartments that I lived in all put together. It was insane. And he would sit there and go, by the way, Andy just won an Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas. And he'd just sit there and he'd be like, man, why am I not Tom Cruise? <laughs> and, I, and I would say, Nick, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, somewhere... I promise you, somewhere Tom Cruise is sitting in a trailer somewhere, and he's going, man, why am I not Tom Hanks? And I guarantee Tom Hanks is sitting in a trailer somewhere, and he's going, why am I not Steven Spielberg? 
it stops there, by the way. All right. God, it's Spielberg's like, no, but, but, and, but I do think that's the natural sort of behavior, you know, that we, we're always like looking like, why, why? Like, you know, and, and I well, think there are a couple really ways you sad. can look at it. You can either look at those, those people for inspiration, I guess, or you can look at them as competition. I'm not sure everybody looks at it as competition in that way. I mean, it may be what burned, how it burned for you. Like that may be fuel. But I think other people look at it as like, oh, I want to try to become that thing. You know, I want to, I want oh, to get sure, as, you know what sure. I mean? No, I, think no, saying, no. I think people look at it different ways. I'm where it's when, like, they, when they look at it negatively, I think that's what it is. I think there's a lot of people, listen, do you, have you been in, have you ever had your name mentioned in Deadline, which is the, you know, that. Oh yeah. And you look at the comments. And you look at the uh, comments and it's like, holy cow, thank God my mother doesn't know how to use the internet. You know, it's like, it, it's just. It's, it's crazy. And it's those people. And you just wonder, by the way, the, so I just took this job like three weeks rewriting this movie, Jumanji. So it was announced, which was so, I, I, it was a rewrite. And like when a rewrite. That's like something from like 1999 that they would announce a rewrite. It's so embarrassing. And I have no idea how it was, but I'm sure it was somebody wanting to get the. Yeah, someone usually that's a producer wanting to get traction for their, probably, for their project. Al- although he denies it. But, but that's what it is. I mean, that's just how that but works. But one of the comments was unremarkable relics of the 90s unite. And they, well, that I'd be pretty. Yeah, I agree. If I, I would put that on my wall if someone wrote said, that about. I mean, that's I would cut it out and put it on my wall. The best is the the five or six of my friends that because I didn't read it. My five or six of my friends that copy pasted it and sent it to me with glee. This episode of the moment is brought to you by Braintree. It's a beautiful thing when your customers want to pay. What if they could pay every way? Braintree lets you accept all forms of payment, including PayPal, Apple Pay, Android Pay, and more. Now you can take them all in over 130 currencies. And as your company grows, Braintree will stay by your side from your first dollar to your billionth. All it takes is a couple lines of code to get started. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash moment. So when was the first time that you wrote something and felt like, okay, I did a thing here. Like, that's me on the page. Because the stuff of yours that is the strongest and that lasts... Like, no one else could have written it. I even think on the TV when you collaborate, I can watch episodes and be like, oh, Scott, that's Scott Rosenberg. Like, only he could have written that. Like, were you in in high school? Like, when was the first time you... Because I'm always fascinated by this question of, like, uh, the innate talent versus hard work or how those things work together. So, like, what was it for you when you realized I'm a storyteller or I love dialogue or I love... Like, how did that... It was one of those things, you know, and I always say it, we're we're, we're rewarded more for our God-given talent than anything else. It was... In second grade, I was I was the kid who, if a teacher was leaving, I would have to write the poem and read it to the whole assembly. Um, do they still call them assemblies? Yeah. Do they? It's great. You have a little baby, so you'll see all this soon. But yes, they do. <laughs> um, you know, it was just I, it it was it just came a hundred percent naturally. I was the, I, we put on a movie, I, I, we put on a play in in third grade called The Millionaire Murder. I played fourteen roles. And directed it and wrote it and the whole thing and 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 uh, literally every part I played they 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 were like well Scott maybe you're actually you can't play the part because only two characters in the scene and just it it just kept on going and I was a very I was always writing short stories I was always writing plays it just it just never stopped it never it never it never occurred to me to do anything else. I wasn't very good at anything else. Were you a good student otherwise? I was an okay student. I was good in English. Um, I was terrible in math and science. I would have liked to have been a doctor, to be honest with you. 
I could get by like in history and social studies and that kind of stuff. Did but, you care? Like, would it bother you? Did you know you were smart? Did it bother you when you wouldn't do as well as some other kids? Some other kid go off? Did it bother me? I mean, at the time, I guess it, it didn't kill me, but it sort of bothered me because, you know, we were all thought we had to get good grades to be successful. So you weren't rebel at that at that time in high school or whatever. You weren't rebellious. No, were no, no, no. I wasn't. I really wasn't. I wasn't rebellious at all. I, I know that you would like me to say. No, that. I'm really interested. No, because uh, if you were, perhaps you wouldn't have become rebellious late. No, I'm not. I don't want any answer. I'm really interested <laughs> I'm in it. Kidding. Your image of me is driving the motorcycle, Danny Zuko. I like that that's your image of what's rebellious. <laughs> Danny Zuko as I actually, some 1950. Yeah. I actually was thinking about there was a referendum on you, what your image of oh, rebellion good. would be, not me. <laughs> um, no, Eric, uh, Robert Blake in Electric Line and right, Blue. Exactly, yeah. perfect. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't particularly rebellious, but I was, I was, put it this way, I would put tremendous amounts of, I wouldn't try in any other area, but when it was, you know, when it was my creative writing class, like that's when I really gave a shit. That's what was important to me, partly because that's what I knew I could excel at. Um, and would you tell people then, like, hey, I'm going to be a writer? Like, no, I really, I really, I had no idea what I was going to do. I think I had some, some vague notion that I would be a novelist, perhaps. I loved movies. Yeah, but, what did you like to read? What were you reading back when uh, you were, that mattered to you? What were the books that ev- mattered? Everything. I mean, a lot of, it's funny because William Goldman, uh, who has become someone that I, you know, I've gotten to know, and we actually worked with some, on something together, and he's the, the best there is. Um, that was the first adult book that I ever read was Marathon Man. It's, right. it's ironic. I never even thought about it until this moment that Marathon Man was the first book I read and the first screenplay I read. So I read all of his stuff because his novels were great. They I was were obsessed awesome. With all of them. Yeah. yeah, you know. And William Goldman, if anyone's listening and doesn't know, I mean, he wrote everything from Marathon Man, Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid. Princess Bride, all the Misery, men. All the President's Men. But yeah, his books, I read a lot of Stephen King. I read Richard Price was a big one for me. It was very important. The Wanderers is like one of my favorite books of all time. Yeah, and to me, Ladies' Man is even better, but those both are great. Um, I'm trying to think of who I love. So you were reading those things in high, like in high school? Junior high, high school, always reading. Still to this day, just always. I mean, you know, like I said, I hate reading screenplays, but you know, I'm always reading fiction. I think it's really important. and But anyway, I, I, I loved movies. I just didn't know. I had one of those cool dads who was taking us to R-rated movies when he shouldn't have been. Um, you know, I saw Magnum Force. I saw The Longest Yard ten times. I actually made a board game of The Longest Yard. That's how obsessed I was with the, not the Adam Sandler I version. understand. Yeah, the original. Um, you know, that was, you know, people always talk about the, the sort of golden age of, te- of, of, of cinema, which was that, that late 60s, early 70s. Well, mid-70s, that was my jam. So that's like, those were my formative years. So I was, you know, he was taking us to see the fucking deer hunter at three and a half hours long. And, and, and it was just, I was like, okay, this is something now that I think I would like, I would like, how do I, how do you figure out how to wait to do that? So it was in your head, like this would be cool to do whether you gave voice to it or not. Right. It was there. And it wasn't until after college when I truly didn't know what to do. And a girl that I fancied was going to Los Angeles for a year she was like moving to LA and I said I want to she didn't like me but I liked her and I said I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go <laughs> I'm going to go find this girl and that's how I wound up in LA and it was it was supposed to be temporary I, I was truly to go back to the bullshit romanticized version of myself I was like thinking I'm going to Paris after college you're Hemingway you're doing the Hemingway I'm going to do that thing I'm going to I'm going to sit at cafes and drink lots of wine and I'm going to write you know my novel but I came out here I went out there 
and once you're out there and you're a writer, you just sort of discover this thing called the screenplay, don't you? You know, and it, it sort of started there. And I wrote, I mean, that's the one thing, man. It was like, you're 22 years old. You, all you have is energy and, and, and hunger, and I'm poor. And I wrote so much. I wrote, I, in those days, there was the, the, the typewriter, remember that thing? So I had this, this electric typewriter, didn't have a desk. Because of where we lived. I lived with like four other guys. So that you met out there, there or you went out with? Uh, I knew them through guys from back home. but And I would put the typewriter on my lap and put a towel in between it because it would get so hot. And I would plug it in and that's how I would write. And literally my roommates would come home and I'm sweating because of the fucking electricity from the typewriter. It's so hot and I'm just banging it out there. And in those days, pre-computer, I mean, this is a long time ago, you... Uh, if you fucked up a script, you you had to start over. Like if you wanted to rewrite, if you right. thought about like a new scene, you didn't, you couldn't just type the you know page sixty. You'd have to like start over. But but I I just I'm so fond of that twenty three year old version of me because he he really did have this tremendous work ethic. He just he just wanted to tell stories over. And by the way, the other thing which was truly my superpower, if I came up with an idea, no matter how uncommercial it was or how stupid it was or there was a movie that day that just came out wouldn't matter I would write it anyway I had to get it out so I wrote 14 scripts before things to do in Denver something like that 15 14 or 15 screenplays yeah, yeah I'd yeah. read that and I'd heard you said that so that's you went out there how would you get your ideas like what did you have like a or were they just coming like oh basically was it a question of just listening and then a idea would surface did you journal would you take long like what what it, was it, your it, thing it, were it, you ever blocked no <clears throat> they would just come it was it was that was the thing they don't come so they don't come with the same with the same frequency now as they did then but they would just but also I think time is more precious so I think that if it occurred to me that I should write a movie about werewolf bikers now, yeah, I may be like, you know, I don't know if I want to spend. But the other thing, too, is I was so fast. I was, there was no one faster. I wrote Denver in a week. I wrote Beautiful Girls in two weeks. I think I did my first draft of Con Air in like three weeks. Yeah, that's the I, one I, I thing was, that I've always felt I don't, I, I, it's the dream I never understood. I went to this dream that you could have an idea and crack it open and write it in a week. But, you know, it took me fucking three and a half years to write Solitary Man or four years. Like, I, it takes sometimes a really long time for me to really have the idea get fully realized. Which I think is great, though. I mean, I, I, I actually long for that. Like, I, I think there's a certain hacky sensibility to, to what I do, that, that the fact that I can do it. By the way, it's not the same. It really isn't the same anymore. Like, it just doesn't. I don't know if it's a function of getting older or, I mean, you and I have had this conversation, too. It's like the, the whole internet thing is... Well, you should. I know that the TV. One of the great things about a TV schedule is it forces your level of concentration. Like now, it is true. I can, you know, we have to write a TV script once it's been outlined in right. a short period of right. time. Right. And so you train yourself to do it for sure. And then you can, you can, but those characters exist already, which gives you a huge head start. You understand their voices, right? right? No, but I'm just talking about just purely just as a writer, and you're writing on this device that, if on the head of a shovel, you could access. The, you know, Nothing. The, the internet, you could look at porn or you could look at, you know, the, the movie reviews or you could look at uh, football game scores on the head of a shovel. Not a fucking ditch would be dug in, in all of Manhattan. You know what I mean? It's like the thing that we, we're sitting there, the, the tool that we're using to ply our trade. You can also press a button and you can just go away into another world. And I, and I think that's part of the Yes, without why. a real deadline. that ha When I'm on a real deadline now, I can shut the internet. I can make myself not... 
tweet and not go to Facebook and not go to anything else. Yeah, I if go, I don't have a deadline, I'm like you. I can't. I I have to really force myself. Okay, do an hour of work before you look at that. Stuff. I go to uh, you know I, I have a place here and I have a place in L.A. and in when I'm in New York writing, the basement of my apartment has no internet, so that's where I go. And in L.A., I'll go to the library. There's a library that you you have to go through some Byzantine access code thing to get on the internet, and I won't do it. And it so really then you is, can do your work. Just because it's, and again, I'm not like constantly, in my normal life, I'm not like, oh, I, I got to check the internet all the time. But when you're sitting there and it's like, and you're stuck or you, you need a break and then you can go and then you can get into this, you know, one of those tornadoes where you're just. But I want to go back to the 15 scripts or 14 screenplays before Denver, the thing that really broke you. Um, and I understand you made a short movie with Gary and you had done little, you, there were little signs that you weren't right. crazy. Right. But it's interesting, right? Because the narrative was your Babe Ruth who like just uh, can do it and is self-destruct, like, you know, the sort of romantic thing. But how did you keep at it? Because the, the, someone who's, who, who it's like, well, it's a gift from above. I don't know where the gift comes from. And I, yet you did this incredible amount of work, Scott, that wasn't rewarded. And then you just kept going. Like what, what may, what do you think it is? Cause I, people listening want to access the creative part, I get letters from people and they're like, you know, how did you know not to give up? Or what is it in you that didn't let, let you give up when, when you weren't, you know, I read in a book once a quote you said, which was, if you finished your first script, congratulations, don't show it to anybody. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. You were like, do not show your first script to anyone. <clears throat> so a lot of people now think like, Hey, I wrote a script, you know, and it's weird for me because Rounders was the first screenplay I, I ever wrote, but that's like, I know that that's the rare bizarre thing and I wrote it with Dave and it was his third screenplay we wrote it together but what made you keep going the truth the, the truth of the matter was I genuinely as a man in his early 20s I loved writing it I loved writing that script and I loved writing uh, that idea tickled me and I was like I'm gonna write this and so I was just having a great time it was a again it was a very very different I was working some shit job. Yeah, what kind of job? I did everything. I mean, I drove a satellite truck around. It was my girlfriend's company. I did this one job where you had to wear chef's clothes and sell this um, like this menu pro dining program, like door-to-door. -door. Really bad. Door-to-door -door sales? Yeah. but Like, wear, like Richard Price ladies. Yeah, man. but wearing a toque, like wearing a, a chef's <laughs> just, outfit. And, and that's just fantastic. Cold calling. But the, <laughs> but I would go home at night, and, and, and by the way, that was the other thing, too. I, I would always give that advice, too, you know, at this point. Like, not not having a bullshit job in showbiz. Don't work in, yeah, don't, don't be somebody's show business assistant you, if you want to be a, you're, a, an you're artist. You're doing that for the folks back home. So you can say, look, I'm here, and, I, and I'm, I'm working for Dick Clark. You know, it's, but like, you shouldn't, because those jobs are 18 hours a day. And, you, and the most important thing is your writing. And so you need a job that when you punch the clock at 6 o'clock, you know, at night, you're not thinking at all about your job. You're thinking about the work. I think that was, was really important. And, and but the truth of the matter is, I just the whole Salman Rushdie thing happened. Remember that when he was he had the the, the fatwa, or, you know? Yeah, he's been. I mean, he's. Uh, <clears throat> I love Salman. I know him. And, and I was and I was feeling depressed about whatever was going on in my life, and 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 uh, at the time, and. I said, I want to write a movie about a depressed kid who, like, loses his job, his girlfriend, and his apartment the same day, and he decides, even though he has no skill, that he is going to assassinate, I fictionalized the, the, the writer, that he's going to assassinate this guy for, uh, for the, whatever they were, I, I think it was like, there was a bounty on his head, right? It was like, you know, $2 million. So it was about this normal kid, Brian Koppelman, who, like, and, and, and Rush, the Salman Rushdie character is going to be coming out of 
hiding to do this one conference because he feels like I should do this conference. It was in Chicago, let's say. And so all the assassins from all over the world sort of come to Chicago and our guy is thrown into this, into this situation. It was called the big clip. And and I knew that absolutely no one. I mean, the direction thing was going it's on. It's like a real Donald Westlake kind of. It's a critical, like Donald Westlake kind of an <laughs> but, idea. But my point is, I knew that there was no way anybody was going to ever care or make it. It was like this John, he was John Cusacky kind of guy. It was funny because it was way before Gross Point Blank. And I just, I was, I just sat down and I wrote it. And I wrote it in you know two three weeks. It was done. I showed it to my girlfriend at the time. I showed it to my roommates, and that was the extent of it. And then it was on to the next. And I think that that was every one of those scripts that I wrote, 60% of them were garbage, but 60% of each script. But you know what? It was, I was just getting better and Would better you notice yourself better. getting better? Was yes. it? You know, did you have a sort of awareness of I'm learning this craft? 100%. Oh, you did? Oh, one point. So even though you're blasting through the thing, you are sort of like, oh, those scenes string together, those five scenes string together and there's something going on. Absolutely. I'm going to, I know how I did that. I'm going to do that as I go forward. 100%. And you would work a few hours, like all night long. Like well, work. I mean, you had to work. You had to work. I had a job. You do your you job. Had, you had to work nights and weekends. I mean, the, the, I always said the, the minute I get a dollar one, like I'm never working nights. I'm never working weekends ever again. Because I was always working nights and weekends. It was like you'd do the job, you'd come home, and you'd have to carve out a couple hours. And I was in a relationship, and I was trying to have fun, and I was trying to be in my 20s. Like I definitely like paid my dues in a big way. But now I look back at that time with incredible fondness. This episode of The Moment is also brought to you by Netflix's Making a Murderer. More than a decade in the making, this new series exposes a real-life thriller set in America's heartland. Making a Murderer follows Stephen Avery, a man from the wrong side of the tracks, who was exonerated after serving 18 years in prison. His release triggered major justice reform legislation, and he filed a lawsuit that threatened to expose corruption in local law enforcement. Go behind the scenes with the directors of Making a Murderer on their companion podcast, now on iTunes, and watch all episodes on Netflix now. And so you did the thing with Gary. You started to get. I was being paid. I mean, I mean, I, I, I was starting to make money. How? How did that happen? We did this. We did the short. The short was the big short of the of of of, of that year. Gary became Flavor of the Month in Premiere Magazine when they used to do that. Like Is that was, the thing Tom Richmond was the cinematographer on? Do you remember? Because he did. I know he did a short with Gary, and I thought no. Okay, no, Bruce Johnson was, and so. I had had a small agent because I won a co- I won a screenwriting contest and I got a, a smaller agent, and then things weren't really um, working out with us. So you would give these scripts to that agent. Yeah. When you would write all these scripts, you'd give them some to of the them. Agent. Some of them. Some of them weren't. You mean some you were new, like you give it to a couple friends, you go, ah, I'm not going to even yeah, try. Yeah. But we went to a bigger agency first of all. You know, I always tell people too, it's much easier to go from one age to a agent to another agent. The hardest part is to get. An yeah. agent, so if you have somebody who's interested in you, it doesn't matter if their their office is deep in the valley above a bail bondsman shop, sign with them. And Joel Silver, of all people, just flipped out for our um, short. And he said, come in and just pitch me something and, I'll, and we'll, I'm buying it because I love you guys. So we pitched him this thing and he bought it. What was it? It was some serial killer. It was, you know, back It was in, not Bad Moon. No, no, no. It was called Love Lies Bleeding. And it was some serial killer, deconstructionist, American psycho kind of thing. And then I sold a pitch to DeLuca, which eventually became this movie, Disturbing Behavior, but not for it. Like, they wound up at a different studio. Years and years and years Years later. and years later. And then Mace Newfeld hired me to write the Michael Conley thing. 
So things were. So you started earning a living. You were able we, to quit we, your. You we, quit your day job. Yes, we did a couple of tales from the crypts. I quit my day job. I moved. I got. I, I actually got a bedroom that I could not have another man. I was gonna say, do you still live with a bunch of people? No, but I. Yeah, but I. But I had my own room. I didn't have my own room for the, all, all these all these years. Right around then is when um, my father died. I rem- because the short got into Sundance, and I remember being at Sundance uh. and calling my father, and he was. That's when he was like he was sick. So I, so it wasn't that, and that was 1990. So he died, I think two years later. And so then it was Denver and Denver was, it truly was that thing. It was a, it was a tsunami of just, it, it, it was interesting because it was like, nobody wanted to make the movie, but they were, everybody was just, have you, have you heard about the script? Have you heard about the script? Have you heard about the script? When, when you wrote it, did you have the sense that you had done something different? No, I wrote it truly the leader to direct it because we were both of us were had different things in various stages of development we'd had for a couple of years. Nothing was happening. I said, you know what we should do? We should just make a little movie. You know, your father's got some dough. I was thinking, like, we'll make it for half a yeah, million. Yeah, we'll just do what we have to do. Half a million dollars, you know? Um, huh. And so that's where it came. And, and, and ironically enough, Donna Langley, who now is the head of Universal, was a reader for these two guys called Ilya and Dimitri Samaha, who were these celebrity cleaner. They owned the Roxbury. They were these guys <laughs> trying to get in the movies. And Donna and her friend Tanya were readers, and they read Denver. They read the script, and they gave it to these guys. And they, these guys said, "We want to make this movie." And we were so we were delighted. And then they owned this restaurant called Babylon. It was like the hot restaurant in Los Angeles at the time. And who goes into hot restaurants but movie stars? So every guy, every movie star that came in, they would just hand the script. They would to. hand the script to here. Take take the and Harvey Weinstein, three thousand miles away, would have meetings with these same actors. And every one of these actors would be like, have you read this one script? You should really read this one script. So no one owned the script. Those no. guys optioned no, it or they, they never, didn't? No, they never optioned it. I mean, we, we those guys got, you know, I mean, not really because it wasn't. Well, they, and also, um, you know, from the stories I've heard about them, I, I don't think, I, I think you didn't come close to getting even for everybody else. Well, no, but also, you know, uh, but also they didn't, it wasn't like the movie went on to become, you know. Yes. Uh, Pulp Fiction. The Titanic they didn't really. Something. They didn't really miss out. No. But so, so then Harvey heard about it. But so the script hadn't sold. You're saying. No. Everyone read it. You became incredibly hot, but nobody bought it. Nobody was interested. I got Con Air off of that, off of that script. You know, it was. The, but Con Air didn't get made before Denver came out. No, 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 no. But uh, I'm saying I got the job right. writing Con Air off of the script for Denver. And it was when I was back in those days, they would make you, uh, Disney would make you write like a, basically a scriptment, which was like a, a treatment kind of thing. But like, you know, before they would trigger this, let you go to script, you would have to write this. And so I wrote that and I turned it in and it was, I had like two weeks before I was going to hear back from them because I think it was over the holidays and I was in Boston and it was snowing and I'd just broken up with my girlfriend of seven years and I was so tired of writing action and racial epithets and all that bullshit. And we were all turning 30 and all my buddies back home. And I said, I want to write, I want to write a movie about guys called Beautiful Girls. And I went into my room and literally emerged two weeks later with that script. Gave it to, pitched it to the producer of Denver, the guy who was going to produce Denver, which was this guy, Carrie Woods. And he, he was skiing somewhere and he called my agent. I, all I told him was that it was called Beautiful Girls. It's about guys. <laughs> and one of the guys has a dog named El McPherson. And he, ah. went, he went crazy. Called my agent from the mountain, the ski mountain. She didn't even know what it was. She was like, I'm, 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 I'm. Uh, he was like, I, I'm buying that script. I'm buying that script. And he, he got that script. He got it right to Harvey. Harvey bought it. It was crazy. So then the two movies got made one after another. Yeah, pretty much. And then Conair. 
in right. a very short right in a very short period of time, which right. then led you into doing a whole other. It's funny if you look at Denver and Beautiful Girls, and then what happened afterwards. It took you a long time to get back to writing that kind of movie, right? What like do you regret any of that, or are you glad that you went off and sort of brought your special your you know your superpower that kind of dialogue and character to these big huge action extravaganzas as opposed to when I watch October Road I see the same which is a show that I loved and I watched every episode of how many years did it, was it on uh, two two right and then I watched the extra bonus stuff you know because it, to me it, it 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 felt like those same people right living their lives again it felt like a thing that you really cared about yeah but you, you know I totally appreciate and understand your question or your comment but the truth of the matter is if you read the scripts the original scripts for some of those big movies they were exactly what you wanted from me exactly what you'd expect from me it just it just the big the machine has a way of sort of buffing it out and it, it what do you mean can't help I'm saying if you read the first gone in 60 seconds which I think is a just terrible movie the first script was and again I'm not blowing myself up although I am I guess first script was was awesome and it attracted this crazy cast and it just the movie once you brought a director in who just was so not interested in anything except car porn again there's a it's funny because I turned down one of the great uh, bungles of all time was I they offered me to rewrite what became Fast and Furious the first one and I said, no, nah, I've already done my car movie. And, and like, who, and, and, th- and on the page, man, that one was like, it was, characters were so thin. Oh, they offered you to rewrite it. Rewrite it, yeah. And and mine was, it Gone in 60 Seconds was like, it was, again, the original script was, it's set in Boston. It was this rich and textured, and it was like Dennis Lee Hain before Dennis Lee Hain. And then, of course, it became this thing. So, so. I'm sure long after you, by the way, uh, I was offered, Dave and I were offered that same thing. Yeah. And uh, I remember Vin Diesel saying to me, uh, this thing is like, uh, it's like going to be like a Springsteen song in a movie and with these cars. And you go, and I remember reading it, talk about being wrong. Like, I, like you, right. that's one of those examples. I remember reading that script and Vin said that to me and I was like, oh, to Dave and me. And we're like, well, we'll read this. I love Spring, a Springsteen right, of course, song of course. with an action. What a great, that by the way, sounds like a Scott Rosenberg movie. <laughs> Absolutely. It's what you'd want. And then I remember reading it and going like, oh, it's nothing like, no, it's not. Right. It's nothing like that at all. Chris. That's so funny. The, 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 the opening line of my original Gone in 60 Seconds script was like exterior uh, Boston streets in the lonely cool before dawn. <laughs> right, literally yeah. Said, right, Springs right it, there. Literally, yeah. Because yeah, that, that was definitely my thing to, going into that movie. So my point, all, all I'm trying to say is that I know it, it's very easy to say like, oh God, what happened? Your brand was sort of, but, but the truth of the matter is I, I was, and I still am to this day. I still write the way I write, but it's just it's just once these movies finally get made, especially these movies, these big hundred million dollar movies, you know they've they've already brought in three hundred other guys, and and the directors are usually. Not. But you didn't make the like, oh, so I was including Con Air in those original right. movies because that does I know that that's a real like you wrote that right that was your it was your idea yeah it was no was they the the studio said. It was a real thing. They sent me, an, they gave me an article about the real Con Air. They said, will you uh, come up with a movie, but we don't want it to be Die Hard in a Plane. Right. And so you wrote the, you then wrote yeah. this movie yeah. and those characters, you can, I can completely see how those are characters yours, the opening right. scene, the whole thing. It feels right. like something that you right. would do. But you never, at that time, still to this day, I mean, you said about, you never said like, oh, I'm going to direct, I'm going to, 
I'm going to make sure that I protect these screenplays by directing or producing those movies. Right. You didn't. I've, you know, listen, it's still, it's something to this day. And I, I wonder what that is. It, like, why? Because yeah, your, your voice, I guess this is the question I was trying to ask the whole time. Like, your voice is so distinctive on the page. And people should go find your scripts online because they don't read, like, any, they, the closest approximation is those early Springsteen records. Like, or Warren Zevon, right? They don't read, like, movie scripts. And they don't read, like, Shane's scripts. There's a, there's some kind of a deep romanticism about the possibility of what can happen between midnight and six in the morning uh, <laughs> when some a guy runs into a girl and then sees his best friend across the room and there is this magic that you communicate Scott about this kind of possibility on the page mm-hmm. in everything that you do but it rarely has been captured right on fucking film right and I, if, it, if I were sitting in your shoes I mean it's the reason I've like at a certain point like I we stopped doing those. I, I don't understand how it didn't drive you fucking mad enough to say, like, I'm going to do this myself. I'm not going to let people get in the way of it. It's interesting because I never really thought about it. Listen, I, I've always flirted with the idea of directing. I came very, very close a couple of years ago. A, I don't have the I, – I sit down in front of the computer with tremendous confidence. Like, my balls are the biggest balls of anyone in the room. And then when I think about directing, like, surely I've, I've sat, you know, on many a set and watched the guy and go, like, wow, I certainly <laughs> – I could do that. I could do that. But then I come across the directors who who I, I'm like, I don't even I – I had a meeting with Fincher years ago because there was a script that he was going to direct that he bowed out. And I was like, you know what? My directorial debut will be – script that I didn't write. That would be even cooler. And there was, so we had a meeting and we sat in this meeting and I came out of the meeting and I was like, well, I'm not directing that movie. He terrified. He was talking. So of course we're going to have to build three of these kitchens. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Three kitchens. It's like, it was about a chef, three kitchens, right? Yeah. You need, and I'm like, why do we need three kitchens? Like I had no idea what he was talking about. And so it's like, I don't think in terms like the filmic language is a little bit, you know, obtuse to me B, but, and this is more important. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about before. I was living my life. Like you say, like, oh, it drives me crazy. I was having a great time. Here's what was fun. What was fun for me was just me and the page, and then it was me, you know, in the club. So everything that happened in between, it, it, it just wasn't that important to me. I'm, I'm not saying I was right. No, no, but, but that's a really I interesting matter. I was, I, I, the, 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 best, the best time in the process for me was when I was writing the script. And after that, knowing that it was going to be co-opted, I probably should have been a novelist. I probably should have been a playwright. But knowing that I, I really wasn't going to, they were going to come in and they, this one and that one and this one and that one, and they were all going to step on it. It was better for me to go, you know what? I've dropped the mic. Like, fuck it. I'm going to go, I'm going to go get my yayas out over here. And I did that for a long period of time. And, and it didn't mean that I didn't care. It didn't mean that I didn't love the work. But at the same time, I knew it was never going to be even, by the way, even when you, I remember, I remember on the scripts that we, I mean, then one, then there's the layer of the studio and then there's the layer of the, you know, the test screen. And then, so it's like, you, 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 you got to compartmentalize the fuck out of this shit. Otherwise you will go mad. And so I was, and I think part of it was being a Boston Red Sox fan. It was like, part of it was like every, every spring, you know, it was like, this could be our year. So every time I sat down at the computer, I was like, you know what? This is going to be the one. That they can't fuck that up. They can't fuck it's going to be so sturdy it, that it, there's nothing it, they can do. And it just keeps happening, you know. Um, and it happens to this day. Like I, I'm, I'm still, I still have that same sort of foolish optimism when I sit down and and and, and write. Well, it's still happening for you. You've made. I mean, you've you have not stopped uh, working at the highest level. It's so funny because uh, we did this thing zoo for TV. It's right, you J- have a TV show with, on with now. James Patterson. 
and because uh, we're starting this TV company. Was this your fourth television series? Fifth, I think. Fifth TV series yes, that you yes, you yes, created yes, or developed with with not one not one. All right, going to California right, was the first. I right. was forgetting that one. Right, going right, to California. Right. Uh, October three. Road, Life on Mars. Uh, Thing called Happy Town. The Happy Town right. show, yeah, and then yeah. uh, Zoo. I'm the David Kelly of failure. Um, <laughs> you just keep going. But but, um, but James James Patterson, who's the you know the best selling novelist in the in the planet, he wrote this book Zoo, and it's based on him. So we were we were talking. Uh, we were in New Orleans, and and uh, he was he clearly had looked at my IMDb page. And he was like, so you had such so much success so early, and then and then kind of just like, why did you, you know? And it's true, I haven't, there haven't hasn't been a movie made with my name on it for like twelve years or something. But I've literally never. I'm writing three, at least three screenplays a year that have been paid to write, and you don't stop working. It's just that. They just haven't gotten made, and well, and you made television. I mean, and we that, made all this television. No, but I'm saying that, that was his point. He said, "Why did you? Why did you leave the movies?" That, that's, I'm sorry, that's what he said. Why did you leave the movies to go into television? And I said, "Actually, I didn't, but it might seem that way based on my on my uh, IMDb page, right?" But I mean, listen, the business is—it's a very, very different business than it was. But when you said, you know, you said the thing about the David Kelly of failure, and I, and a question I'd written down to ask you, and the most I haven't asked that I've written down because we were just talking, but. You've answered it a little bit about the blind optimism and being a Red Sox fan, but in a more practical sense. Like, so you make October Road, a lot of people say nice things about it, but ultimately the show doesn't catch on. Right. And this thing, Life on Mars, I know you loved that show. Right. Both shows, like great casts, right. magic. There was actually, you can look at it objectively. How do you, like, what's the process that you then sit down? Like, how do you, are you just born that way that you can tell yourself it's going to be great? Because, like, that kind of, it's not failure, but, you know, success stops short, whatever you want to call it. The thing didn't go the whole way. It didn't come all the way to fruition. How do you walk into rooms and tell networks even, like, this one's going to be, you know, um, this one's going to be the home run? How do you tell yourself? How, how do you, like, what, how can we all do what you do, which is, like, re-sort of um, reanimate ourselves with the possibility? I don't think that that is, that, that is truly my favorite part of what we do is that it's always different. And something new will catch fire, get you excited, and get you hard. And it's it's it it it, it is just as, I mean it's it's some crazy, some crazy version of of of. I mean I, I feel bad. You you feel guilty. I mean I, I remember when Mars was canceled, and I was we shot Mars here in New York, and we were shooting Happy Town in Toronto. And I had to go from basically the last episode of Life on Mars, saying goodbye to the cast, get on a plane, and then fly up to Toronto where we were prepping the new show. And I remember when I first got there, I had such resentment against the new cast and the new line producer and the new DP and the crew. I was like, because, because they I, weren't your family. They weren't my family. And about a week into it, once you start, you know, you start generating the scripts and rehearsing and seeing, and then all of a sudden it's like, the one before, I have great fondness for it, but it's like it's 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 my first wife who passed away, and and then you just get you get excited all over again, and I think that that's it's it, that's what it is. It ha- it has to be. You just have to get you have to f- have that that fire in your belly that the next one is going to be. This is it, it, the success is so. October Road wasn't successful. I made such long lasting friendships and relationships out of that. I. <laughs> October was literally beautiful girls. I mean, it, it was. I mean, you could, there, there are analogs of every character. And, and so I got to tell 
Beautiful Girls is based on my life. I got to I got to revisit that. I got to tell that story again. But instead of I think we did twenty hours, as opposed to two, it was always you know it, it was always to me there was a little bit of you know Ted Demi who you know our I know you, you're close with Teddy. Um, <laughs> I always felt like I was honoring Teddy with that show. You were. Um, I think so. So that so again. So was it a failure? I mean, no. And I don't I don't think any of them are truly Kangaroo Jack, maybe with the exception, but. But none of them are failures. But that was a, actually a hip. I mean, that I was know, a hip movie. I know. I had O'Connell on here. Both of you guys are like a little sheepish about it. Have you, have you, oh, we're friends. O'Connell's a buddy, and both of you guys are sheepish. I was like, you know, that movie worked. And and no, he, it didn't. It didn't work if you know from whence it came. I, mean, I know, I, right? But it did become a, a commercial. It was a commercially successful venture. Yeah, but I mean. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> sure, it was. It was <laughs> yes, it was. No, but both of you guys. It's so funny. What did you guys think you were going to do? The original? No, I'm saying once. Because you, you well, were still no, involved. No, in the, I wasn't. I wasn't. Only well, you what? and Don't only you and Steve have credit on that movie. No, but I wasn't. Uh, but I was. I was doing something else. I was not. I, went, I didn't go to Australia. I didn't. I didn't do any of it. I wasn't. When it became a kids movie, it was originally called Down and Under. Right. And the pitch was. It was literally Nick Cage and Chris Farley. It was like that was what it was going to be. It was planes, trains, and automobiles meets. You know what? And it was, and Steve and I sold it. It was the biggest selling comedy pitch at the time. We would, we went to. Fi- it, it was the greatest pitch ever. It was a three minute pitch. It was the best pitch of all time. It was. We went to fifteen places in two days. I remember the the quick story was we walked into MGM and we walked in first meeting and the guys who run MGM is like, you should know we don't buy pitches and like, huh? We don't. It's company policy. We don't buy pitches. We don't believe in them. We don't buy them. And I'm sitting there fuming at my agent. Just like, what the fuck? Yeah, how the hell could you put in this? Well, we're here. Do you want to hear it? So we pitched to him. Awesome, a great idea, really good, but we don't buy pitches. And we walked out, we're in the parking garage, and I called uh, I called my agent. Are you fucking kidding me? Seriously, we have 15 places to go, and, <laughs> and you send us to a place that doesn't buy pitches at our first one? Talk about, like, losing our boners? Like, what's the matter with you? And she's like, Scott, Scott, do, do you want to stop? Do you want to stop being hysterical right now? I go, yeah, what? She's like, they just opened at 400,000. Right. So it was like, that's how good the pitch was. And then it once the movie, uh, they, 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 the first assembly of the movie, they realized it was just awful. And, oh, and way, then turned it into a kid's movie? Michael Shannon's in it by playing the bad guy. Like, I always forget about that. And then, yeah, and then they, they turned it into a kid's movie, and they made the thing, I think the thing talks, or I don't know what, I haven't seen it, and I'm sure I'll, I'll be showing it to my <laughs> my young son. Well, yeah, so, okay, good. This is where I wanted to bring this thing to uh, by the end. Anyway, you know, you were somebody who would kind of always look at your friends who had kids, and I could see, you know, ask, we had a lot of talks before you did this where you were like asking questions about it. So you now have a child and, uh, has it changed? Do you feel like it's changed the way you think about any of this stuff at all? Your baby's still young. Very yeah. Young. I mean, I really want to give you the answer that I know I'm supposed to give nah, you. Nah, man. What's but, the real but, answer? I mean, he's, well, he's nine months old. So he's, he's, you know, he's still not really bringing anything to the fun table. So it's not, we're not, we're, I mean, we're pals. Uh, I'm quite, no, right. He's I'm not. Quite, yeah. Uh, when he starts talking, it'll be But, it, but also yeah. I, it, it's, I'm, I'm. I'm an older dad. I'm pretty set in my ways. Yes. It's, it's, I, I am waiting. I, I know that it's up ahead. Like all of this is, you know, I've seen what it, what it has done to all of my friends. I'm looking forward to it. I had a great relationship with my father and it's, you know, I was like, wow, it's just going to be so great to <coughs> have a reason to watch all the old Pixar movies again, you know? Yes. Um, but it's, it, it really is sort of just, it's in diapers. Does the responsibility it of it weigh on you? Of being good at, of like, because I can it almost, like you're, it's almost like you're putting pressure on yourself to feel and do a bunch of stuff. Do you find yourself doing that to yeah, yourself? Well, yeah, you feel, you feel like I, I, I asked, uh, cause I just, I, I just came back from New Zealand and it was like a 13 hour flight. 
When I got back, I asked my his mother, I said, um, can I ask you a question? How many times a day do you think about Bowie? His nickname's Bowie. How many times a day do you think about Bowie? And she's like, like every... Yeah, all day all long. Along. I was like, oh, okay. She's like, why? I was like, well, I, no reason. I was like, why? Because <laughs> I, like, I was on this 13-hour flight, and I realized, like, until I landed, like, I didn't, it just didn't... I was, like, watching Ant-Man, and I was reading my book, and I was making notes, and, like, it just didn't... It just didn't pop into my... I love when, when I'm with them, you know, it's... So it's 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 really interesting. I'm, I'm sure sometimes I'm sure that will change. Yeah, sometimes for dads, it right. takes until about a year when they can really react, and they're you really, especially for you right. who's a storyteller, right? You know, you for you got to see him really like you, right? And get you, right? Exactly. That's just part of like, especially for a narcissist of my degree. No, but, but I'm just saying. Then it'll all. I know it. I I'm certain of it. It'll all lock. But in. I will tell you. The two days, two, three days after he was born, an idea popped into my head and it, it had been a while that like an idea that was like, it, that popped into my head fully formed. It had been like a, at least a year and a half and I'm going to, I just finished this, this job. I just finished two jobs and before I start some of the other television stuff, I'm going to write this on spec in the next. Good. Cause you know, I love writing specs. That's the thing we didn't talk about. Like I'm always that guy. Like it's so you, you, you were the, you guys were not big spec writers, right? No, only oh, were, only oh, spec oh, writers. Okay, mostly. I always get my friends mixed up who, because a lot of them just don't have no interest in writing specs. We, no, I mean most of the things there. we've gotten made, all, not not all. Like even our t- our television show, billions, right? Spec, red spec. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we could because the whole idea of pitching and then the expectation that they have and you have it gets changed in the room. For sure. When it's your special secret, right? There's power, and uh, you can 100%. write the thing. So like, no rounders of spec, solitary mammals of spec. Like the things that we've done that are the best things. Right. Billion. They were written in a vacuum. Right. Quietly. Right. But that was so already he's uh, he's yielding dividends. The little bastard, because you know it's a great idea. I'm going to write it. Who knows what will happen? But it it could conceivably be to bring this whole thing around. There's no problem with I finish it and I put it on the shelf. Like again, it's it's that maybe it'll be great, but maybe it won't. And you'll just tell you now will just go write it. Like, and if it takes you two months, you will really just focus on and it. It's, and it's it, you get to that place where a lot of times you don't get with assignments or you know, I sold a couple of pitches in the last year where. It's the first thing I, it's the last thing I think about when I put my head in the pillow and when I wake up, that's, that's how I know when it's like really good. When I wake up, it's the first thing I'm, I'm thinking about it. Cons, I hear a song. Ooh, that, and, yeah. and, and, and so it's just, it's, it's weird that I hadn't felt this way in a while and the birth of my son actually sort of fomented it. I don't think that's weird at all. It makes sense to me. I guess It'll it make I mean, sense yeah, to you yeah. down the, I mean, down the road too. Yeah, I have an idea, and I've sort of told my, I had to put a, I, that just showed up fully formed, and it's a it's such a when you as you get older, when that happens, it is that you just want to catch it, and I've been making billions, and that is the first thing I think about, and you know, it's uh, because that started also as a spec, and Dave and I have thrown ourselves completely into it, and I I love every part of making it. This idea, I I know I have to find a way to write the first draft of it before it goes away, right. Because they can. Right. Oh, for sure. The feeling, uh, like sure. the idea, I will remember the idea. And yeah, I've written, no, but I mean, the, the, the emotion that the idea triggers in you, it does have like a lifespan, right? Oh, 100%. It's crazy. The, 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 there have, like I said, there were other ideas in the last year and a half. But, and I spent the weekend with them and I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. This is so exciting. But there was no way I was going to get to them. It, it really, the best thing is to get to them immediately. And you really, you really have to because, it, because whatever that spark is, 
that first ignited, it, it just needs to be, it just, you just need to tend to Yeah, it. you have to get to it, for sure, and run as far as you can. Yeah. And so that's what you're about to go do. Yeah. And because you're making your show. Making this show, making a, a few other things are happening. Um, but in the meantime, I, I, I foresee I could have, and by the way, it's yeah, also- Down some, the road, people are going to, down the road, uh, not so far from now, people will come back to this podcast and they'll wonder, wait, what was that? The thing where Scott's like, and a few other things, is that this thing that we're not allowed to talk about? And it was. Right. Exactly. Just know it was, and right. we didn't, right. and we won't. Right. But we could. We could. Scott Rosenberg. Yes. You are one of my favorite screenwriters oh, in the world, you're dude. So kind. You have been since the moment I first read the first few lines of Things to Do in Denver. You're also a friend, and um, I'm rooting for whatever you do next. Thanks for coming and doing this. I appreciate it. You can find Scott... You know, if you're lucky enough to be his Facebook friend, you get great, it's like reading his scripts, great posts. If you follow him on Twitter, you get nothing. But go ahead and do it. Twitter is, like it's, 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 you get nothing it's, from Scott if you follow him on it's, Twitter. It's too few characters for me, man. I, I can't, I you, can't. You got to do the numeral thing and then go. What's your thing on Twitter? What's your handle? I think it's at Scotty Rosenberg. We'll put it in the show notes. Jason will put it in the show notes. I'm at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Um, I do give you value for your Twitter follow. And, uh... You can uh, rent and watch uh, all of Scott's movies. Go get them off of uh, iTunes or Amazon or Netflix or wherever you want. Watch his television shows. If you want to email me, themomentbk at gmail.com, but don't pitch me ideas. And don't pitch them. Just do what Scott does. Get the idea. Sit a typewriter on your lap. Get a six-pack of beer and write, 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 write. All right. See you next time. On the moment. Hey, this is Gabriel Roth, and I'm the host of the Slate Serial Spoiler Special, the podcast that accompanies the second season of Serial, which debuted this week. Every week, Slate writer Katie Waldman and I will dig into the latest episode, parsing the latest developments, clues, hints, and ideas, hopefully getting us a little closer to the truth behind the case of Bo Bergdahl. So join us every week after Serial. Serial.